0: This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you, and happy
1: listening. Welcome, to see you. So, um, we always start our interviews by just asking the poet, you know, about your choice of poems. So perhaps say something about the Blake first.
0: Yes, um, I chose the Blake because I did a a very large project around Blake in Russia a few years ago. William Blake's pictures went to the Pushkin Museum in Moscow. Mm. And although he had been translated before into Russian, it was the first time that the Russians had seen his pictures as well as his poetry. And so there was a quite... It had a really huge impact. Mm. And I think it really changed... Um, how the Russians viewed William Blake, which was really wonderful. Mm. And one of the things that I did was um, I was involved in a translation of the book of Innocence and Experience and with some Russian translators, and I was talking to them about all the poems. And a couple of them really stuck in my mind, and that was one of them. Mm. And it was really good to translate it, um, because translating is obviously such a fantastic way of, of, of studying a poem mm. that we, we found extraordinarily spiritual depths in it I suppose mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. that's how I chose Blake but as a, a sort of principle I chose Blake because he's such an independent writer and he has such an unusual and unique um, position and mm-hmm. I admire that greatly uh, you know to be somebody who was not at all recognised um, in his own lifetime and yet to keep going and to keep going so assiduously and with so little reflection I think mm-hmm. um, on his own position is, mm-hmm. is an extraordinary extraordinary thing
1: Mm. Mm. And the Charles Corsley, because that, that seems to relate to the Blake, I mean he's obviously thinking of Blake, uh, the Corsley poem. I don't know Charles Corsley at all, is it Charles Corsley? Yes, yeah. yes. I don't know him at all, Yeah.
0: I can't recommend him enough, he's a mm. wonderful writer, and he's um, that's a 20th century writer, who was, um, he lived in Cornwall all his life, I and mean, perhaps some of you you know Charles Corsley, Um and I'm sorry if I'm telling you, you know, things you already know, but he's, he's, I'm so full of enthusiasm for his work because he, he, he was a very rooted poet. He lived in, um, um well, I call it Launceston, but I think it's actually pronounced completely That's- differently. How's it pronounced? That's- Lanson, Fantastic, thank you very much. <laughs> I spent my life reading it, and never it. <laughs> but I've never got there yet. But, and he and he went to um, see uh, in the navy in the Second World War. So there's a lot of his poems are around, um, mm. you know, marine ballads like this one. Mm. And he's got the most extraordinary poems about being at war and being on on, on a ship and and visiting all the different parts of the world and. Mm-hmm. So he's he's an amazing poet, but he shares with Blake a completely um, a complete independence of spirit, really. And mm. again, somebody who just kept writing. I think he worked as a school teacher and he wrote, and he you know he didn't ever really he never uh, kind of he never doubted. He just kept going, and I mm. think that's a really extraordinary quality. So in a way, that's why I chose both the Blake and the Causley, because they both represent people who have such a sort of strength of heart, really, mm. that they don't think... Um, you know, they don't doubt, and that's mm. something I admire very much. Mm.
1: When we were talking earlier on, you were saying that you might have chosen uh, David Constantine, who came to poetry. So I'd just be interested to hear why you were thinking of choosing David, because I was very impressed by him myself. So.
0: David's somebody who... Um, has actually had a genuinely very profound influence on me because he taught me, um, as an undergraduate, he taught me German and Russian, or German, I studied German and Russian, and German poetry. And he found out at some point that um, I wrote poetry and a friend of mine wrote poetry and a few other people wrote poetry. And he agreed to give up his time and just do a poetry circle for us. Mm. And um, I've taken an awful lot from that because he's a very, very generous um, teacher and an extraordinary poet, and I think his, his attention to the word and his feeling that, you know, there is nothing more important uh, of, of, very, of being very influential in my own writing life. Mm. Um, mm. Although I think, and partly I didn't choose him tonight because I know he's been to read here and not that long ago, and mm. I thought perhaps I would look at something slightly different. Mm. And partly also because um, I'm... I read his poetry now with extraordinary of all, because I think he's a magnificent poet, but I see that in some way, philosophically, I'm not quite doing the same thing as him, and so I mm. suppose it was a kind of marker for me that I have to—I've done something slightly different. Mm. So. I see,
1: yes, yeah. Yeah, 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 indeed. So uh, I want to start by sort of asking you more about your life first, and then talk about the books a bit more. Um, I wonder whether you could just say, I was sort of asked, I'm always interested in this, in... When did poetry and how did poetry enter your life? Um, reading it, writing it—how did it how did it come about? If you
0: I don't really know. That's a really I mean, it's a very good question, but I'm not sure. I've I've, I've written poetry for a very long time, <coughs> probably not seriously, but I wrote it as a child. But and um, I read a lot of poems as a child, probably. Learning poems and reading them in school, but nothing particularly radical. I do remember, though, the only thing I've ever stolen, I have to to this now, was <laughs> a poetry book which I stole from school, because so I loved it so much. At the end of the term, we had to hand them back in. And it was, a, it was a very old-fashioned one called A Choice of Poets, with a selection of, you know, various poets, including Edward Thomas and DH Lawrence, and, mm. you know, a whole range of different poets. And I loved it so much that I said I'd lost it. And I kept hold of it. And I still got it
1: on my shower <laughs> Were your family interested in poetry? Or?
0: No, not particularly. No, mm. In fact, I remember once, I remember my father once asking me to define poetry, and I started saying, well. And I looked at him, he'd fallen asleep.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask about obviously, is your. With your Russian connection, Um, the estate, uh, your 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 volume, the estate starts with this wonderful sequence of poems about Pushkin and set in. I know you stayed in his his estate, and you've lived in Russia for five years. So I'd be interested to hear how, you know, not only how poetry entered your life, but how Russia entered entered your life, sort of thing, and (coughs) presumably the Russian language and so on.
0: Yes, again, it's slightly hazy for me. I started teaching myself Russian when I was uh, um, at school, and then. I met her uh, through a teacher at school. I met a woman in Br- Brighton who was extraordinary. She'd left Russia um, in uh, in the Revolution, and she'd come to um, Britain via some incredibly securitous route around Europe. And um, she was just extraordinary. And she lived in a flat very close to my school in Brighton. And mm. on the outside, it was an ordinary block of flats, and then inside, it, was, it felt like Alice in Wonderland, it was Russia, and <laughs> was a samovar, and, you know, Russian pictures and a Russian divan, and... Mm. And we read Chekhov together on Friday afternoons. Thank you, too. <laughs> <laughs> and she used to make me a lemon tea. She was very elderly by then. And, um, so I did that. And then I went to Russia and mm. then I studied Russian and then went back to Russia and spent quite a lot of time toing and to- throwing and. Mm. and- and it, yes, it's always been part mm. of my life, and I can't honestly mm. tell you quite why. And you just started
1: teaching in South Russian? Yes. What, why, do you know, why in Russian? Do you? I don't know. Really. A, well, how old were you when you started teaching? I was, about,
0: I was about 10 or 11.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Anybody <laughs> else teaching in <the> South <laughs> Russian? 10? <laughs> <laughs> 10 <laughs> I 11? No, very no, no, much. quite unusual, isn't
0: it? I, felt, I really did feel very drawn to Russia, and mm. um, I went on a school trip, and I remember and um, then we had an inter guide you know one of these incredibly um, um, they, they were very sort of then when I went in the 80s they were very um, um, they'd been chosen put for their political allegiances and so on to go around with western school groups and mm. this man was kind of completely sort of inscrutable and I remember that I used to drive them wild well, because I used to go up, and, like, go up and pester him with questions in Russian that I'd learnt <laughs> <laughs> no idea what I was saying of course <laughs> get, get <rid> of <laughs>
1: so and, um, uh what else was I thinking? I lost my track of thought. Um, so did and you, you, and you start you started learning Russian then? I, I slightly wonder whether it was to do with your name, cause when I first heard you now I assumed that Sasha sounds like a, a Russian name.
0: Just coincidence. Yes, oh, right. be coincidence. It's not that
1: your parents are particularly interested in all things Russian? No, no. No, no, no I don't no. think so. And what about theatre? You know, obviously you've translated Nugent's Praise, you talk about Chekhov. Um, can you say something about theatre and, and Russian theatre particularly and your whole involvement in that? Well,
0: I, I started, um, I was working for the British Council and mm. I was the arts officer in Moscow, so I was doing a lot of theatre work and, you know, theatres were coming out from Russia and I was with them and I was going back um, to see British stage companies and talk to talk to them about coming to Russia. So there was a lot of theatre in my life generally and I've always mm. been quite an avid theatre goer so that really really suited me and then we started a project called the New Writing Project with a lot of young Russian playwrights and there simply weren't any translations of their work so I said well I'd better do a few so there's something to work with and mm. so that's how it started really. I translated a few few plays and then found I had a real appetite for it and I really enjoyed it and mm. And it was also a sort of urgency, really, because there was nobody doing that sort of work then. There was nobody um, who was that interested in new, new Russian writing in Russia, and certainly not outside Russia. So um, it was, it, it was there was a complete, it was just a vacuum. So there was everything to translate, yeah. and that's how I, I started working on the project. And then when I came back to Britain, I carried on working for the Royal Court because. Really, really, practically speaking, it was the same situation here. There was no one around who would translate Russian drama, and mm. I just happened to be mm. there and happy to do it.
1: And what was it like working with the Royal Court? Did you did you enjoy it? Did you?
0: Yes, I like um, the Royal Court a lot, and mm. I like I like doing the Russian the Russian drama. It was always quite odd because most of the Russian drama was very um, was a real reaction to classic classical Soviet. Drama, so it was all completely obscene and um, <laughs> and sort of highly pornographic, and you know, and it had all sorts of awful things happening in it, and mostly it was just um, you know kind of obscenities. Mm. And so I'd sit in my house with this you know play in front of me, trying to translate and working out how to say certain things in English. And I'd ring around all my friends and I'd say, I've got this phrase here, and I just wondered to tell you say it in English. <laughs> 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 <So>. <laughs> So it was it was odd it was odd it was, yeah, a, it was yeah. like transition from one language sort of through English
1: into another language. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, in the, yeah, moving on to your work, um, you know, ov- obviously um, Russia, Russian poetry has affected you uh, very much. Your work uh, in um, in um, the Guardian Review, the, uh, Paul Batcher says it's a bit like the Edward Thomas in a conversation with Marina. I don't know.
0: Survivor. Survivor,
1: yeah. so the fact that there's this sort of meeting between sort of English and sort of English Romantic or in you know, pastoral sense with sort of Russian and European poetry. Would that? Would you agree with that? Is that your sense of your So word?
0: Interesting. I, I don't honestly know, and I'm, it's very hard for me to judge. The hmm. only thing I can say is that um, what I was very impressed by in Russia and in Russian poetry circles and going to Russian poetry readings was again. Well, a bit like David Constantine, it was incredibly serious. It wasn't, there was no sense that it was a, something that you might do as a hobby. It was a, mm. it was a deadly serious activity and you devoted your life to it. And there's something quite inspiring about being with people who think that poetry is worth that much. And so I suppose, even if I didn't take a lot of, um, I can't say I was highly influenced by any of the Russian poets, but mm. I do think that seriousness is something really valuable. And perhaps in British poetry, which maybe mm. at times, you know, it's the great fault of Russian poetry is that it can spiral off into abstraction and um, sort of, you know, at its worst, into stuff which just is is, is abstract kind of nonsense. Mm. The fault of British poetry, it seems to me, is that it, it it does the opposite. It almost it's very happy to drop down into the everyday and um, sort of mm. description of the everyday. So, mm. whilst you know that, that's quite a, it's quite a nice influence to have that simply that seriousness, I mm. suppose. Mm.
1: Yes, indeed. And you, you know, you you, you translated Elena Schwartz, but were you particularly drawn to her poems, or you know, was was she an important figure for you?
0: Yes, yeah, she was very important for me. I Again, was, I don't know her
1: as a poet at all.
0: She's a very um, powerful poet. And after I did my degree, I was planning to do a, a PhD in Elena Schwartz mm-hmm. and Joseph Brodsky, and I didn't get any funding, and I got a job in Russia instead, so I I took the job mm-hmm. and. Uh, I'm glad, glad I did, but I always felt that I had some unfinished business and that mm. I had to come back. So I, I did translations of Elena Schwartz, mm. and probably that was a much better thing to do because, you know, again, translation is such an act of homage that mm. you, mm. you know, it was, it was almost a better, better way to, to, to ha- have that relationship with Elena Schwartz. And in fact, I finished her work, and um, she was supposed to come over to Alderborough a couple of years ago and she she rang me up and said she'd been having some stomach cramps and she couldn't come and and she died of cancer very shortly Mm. after that so Mm. it was very, very sad. I I almost Mm. met her more times than I can tell you and never managed quite to meet her Mm. but translated her and always Mm. felt we had great closeness because when we talked about her poems on the internet or, you know, by phone it was always wonderful to talk to her because Mm. she was so full of she was a very quick alive person so... Mm. So I was very sad not to actually properly meet
1: her. Mm. And what draws you to translation generally? Because it's renowned as being a thankless task, translation. I mean, in the old days, they didn't even they didn't even sort of acknowledge the translator. They just. You know. what, what draws you to translation, particularly? Well, originally. It's hard work, isn't it?
0: Yes, it is. I mean, originally it was a, a duty because mm. there was so much new writing and also in Russian new poetry that was coming. Through and wasn't being translated at all by anyone, or if it was being translated, it was translated by people who weren't necessarily that bothered. They just wanted to get a translation out there. They weren't Mm. going to spend hours fiddling with every line, and that I mean that has its place too. I think that's you know, but so there was there was a sense that there was an awful lot of work that needed to make its way into English Mm. so that more people could read it, Mm. and I don't know. And I, now i I love translating I love the sense that you're and there's a really great thing um, you know you know when Keats talks about negative capability in writing mm. and I've always been really struck by that idea of somehow um, undoing yourself in order to to admit something great so he talks about Shakespeare having negative capability mm. so the sense that you can you can undo yourself in order to enter into somebody else and i I liked that so much and I thought that was a wonderful way to describe translation which is quite a sort of um, well is uh, quite a sort of meditation in its own way because mm-hmm. you do actually mm-hmm. sort of undo yourself completely in order to climb into something that mm-hmm. belongs to somebody else and course, find yeah. it again in, in
1: mm-hmm. English
0: so it's a very interesting thing to do now
1: mm-hmm. mm-hmm. um, yeah, So let's, moving on a bit more to the work um, I wanted to ask you a few questions but I've got lots of questions um, one of the things that struck me, for instance, is um, is the use of form in the books. So, uh, you know, reading both Red House and The Estate. There seems to be... There's firstly a really interesting form, it seems to me. There's a lot of sonnets. You seem to be particularly drawn to the sonnet form, I thought. Um, you use quite a lot of rhyme, even full rhyme, which is quite unfashionable now. Uh, but there's also quite a lot of experimentation, I found. Um, there's... Uh, you're sort of quite uh, particularly use or not use, of punctuation, for instance, or, or uh, poems without titles. and So there's, it feels to me there's a, this tension in the work between an honouring of the, the great tradition of form and a desire to experiment. I don't know whether that's how you, how you feel about it, but I wonder whether you say something about you and form and experimentation um, I'm to me,
0: quite, I'm, I'm quite... yes, it's hard, because again, that is something that comes from Russia, of course... And up to, I mean, until now, and even now, most poetry in Russian is written in informal meter and mm. rhymes. Mm. I think there's some crazy statistic, like three percent of Russian poetry is written in free verse. Mm. So it's completely the opposite of the, the you know, the the, the mm. way the current here, I suppose. And so, and I, I've talked a lot to Russian friends, and I don't think this is why I do it, but it's certainly something that's interesting for me to talk about. And mm. they, um. One of my friends, particularly Grisha Grushkov, who's a very um, brilliant translator of, of poetry, particularly Irish poetry and Yeats and Heaney, and, mm. and he was talking about how rhyme is magic because when you start a rhyme, you make a, it's like a magic spell and you have to find a, a rhyme and that mm. what you find to rhyme with that word will take you off in a direction that you'd never sensed was in the poem. And I, yeah. I've, I've always really liked that idea that the yeah. poem would would take itself off on a walk, I suppose, mm. and through the rhyme. And um, I've, I've and I've also I also feel sometimes that in Russia people learn poetry and they learn translations of poems and they know mm. for example you know my, many Russian people can quote Burns and yeah. um, anything Keats and Wordsworth in in Russian translation and it's very it's very uh, widely done people know poetry they know right. it just by heart mm. and I don't think we do in the same way and I suppose partly it's because it, it hasn't got that in completely. That's um, a completely underpin, un, under, musical underpinning, mm-hmm. I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, and the experimentation is um, is mostly in, in punctuation. And I, d- I d- It's interesting. I don't know. Um, I'm glad you said that because it's it's a sort of interesting thing for me to reflect on. The punctuation is very, very definite. Because whenever mm. I spoke to my editor about it, and she said, "Well, there's no full stop there. Yes. Is that how you want it?" And I go back to it and I look at it and I, it, and I put a full stop in, look at it for a while, and then I put it out again.
1: <laughs> it has to be, as yeah. it is,
0: and it's peculiar actually because I think so- sometimes it does look as if I've just left, left it off, but it's it's
1: no, it feels very sunk, very conscious when I read it. Hadn't I? What what, what, is, what it did to me in reading it, was it meant I needed to be on my toes more when I read it. <laughs> you know, how to read it. Uh, it creates a slightly different relationship to the poem, I thought, anyway. I don't know whether that's what you had you know, in mind. But.
0: Well, it might be partly because that's, when I'm writing it, that's also how I, I feel. It's not letting me, it's not, the poem isn't letting me mm. um, come to a definite conclusion mm. sometimes. Mm. Yes.
1: For instance, Red House, it doesn't have a full stop at the end, does it, the whole, the, the book. The, I was very struck by the last sentence. And it shouldn't have a full stop. Well, I'll come back to the last <laughs> sentence But it sort of shouldn't have a full stop, shouldn't it? I, 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 that struck me, and it sort of chimed back through all the punctuation in, in, in a certain sort of way. Um, but going, keeping to Russia for a minute, um, you know, with, I am very fascinated because I, I don't know anything about Russia and I've never been there. Um, I was very struck by um, your sequence, The Estate, in, in, in The Estate, which starts the estate, your 2007 collection. Um, it's written, it's, a, it's, it's about a popular legend about Pushkin. I wonder whether you say a little bit about it. It's such an interesting such yeah. legend. And I was very struck by the sequence, whether you might just say something about that.
0: Yeah, well, I was going to Russia quite a bit um, to do seminars on translation, um, and we were translating British poetry and British plays in a place called Mikhailovska, which is Pushkin's estate where his family and his ancestors came, you know, lived, and, and it's the estate they owned. And it became a russian it 's a really fascinating thing actually it 's one of those extraordinary places it Pushkin is the the kind of um, literary saint of russia patron saint of russia in literature mm. and he's incredibly important to to to, to russians and um, p- most Russians know a lot of his poems and you know can, so he's there 's no real equivalent i don 't I don't think in 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 britain but um the the estate Mikhailovska after the um, Second World War, that whole area had been occupied by the Germans and been completely destroyed really and um, there was a very, very visionary um, man who took over the estate and decided that he was going to make it this ex- this just, this museum place um, to Pushkin and to Russia and with the most incredible, I mean, there was nothing there then, I mean, it was just, Russia was destroyed, people would dying of hunger, and yet he managed to put together this, this, this wonderful sort of reservation, really, round it. I mean, to the extent that... I mean, it's enormous. It's many miles squared. To the extent that there's a, a railway embankment that stretches right the way across that originally had a railway line on it. And this this um, man who took over the estate agreed with the government that they wouldn't replace this railway line, they'd leave the railway line out because it was going through this special reservation where Pushkin had grown up.
1: Mm. And so
0: it's, it's an amazing place. And even when Russia was falling apart in the 1990s, it was one of the few places that was kept absolutely immaculate. So all around the house where Pushkin lived, um, the, the, gro- the, gro- the drives were swept and the, the bins were emptied and the flower beds were, you know, restocked. And Mm. and the '90s were a very difficult time in Russia, and Mm. and a lot of 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 Russia looked very drab and and was really suffering. But Mikhailovsky was a sort of place apart, some sort of mythical Mm. place, and it's it's enormous. And if you go there, there's Pushkin's house and his various relatives' houses and a mill that he's supposed to have based one of his poems on, and Mm. um, amazing place. And it's also a very a very sacred place because it's so untouched and so quiet, and um, I really see an opening for the London Buddhist Centre. A Russian <laughs> tree, <laughs> it's fantastic. If you go into summer, you can hear cuckoos at midnight, and, um, so. <laughs> and
1: um, bears and wolves and. the bears actually.
0: And and hares and hares and there's a story that Pushkin, who was exiled there in the. Um, 1820s. Uh, do I mean that? I can never remember the dates. So, 1820s, I think. Anyway, whenever the Decemberist uprising was in Russia, when the, a few um, people um, stormed the Winter Palace in, 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 Lening- in St. Petersburg mm. and um, demanding uh, a constitution... And the people who led this uprising were all executed or sent into exile in Siberia. And Pushkin wasn't there, although many of his friends were amongst those who were ex- executed and exiled. And the reason he wasn't there was that he was actually already exiled. He'd been exiled to Michalovsko, which is a sort of very gentle exile. Mm-hmm. And his father had, um, I think, had, uh, interceded on his behalf with the Tsar and promised um, to look after, to look, at, to look, to look, to spy on Pushkin if he went Mm. to Mikhailovsk. So he lived in this very uncomfortable um, relationship with his father, who was supposed Mm. to be spying on him. He was out in Mikhailovsk. And um, he set off for St. Petersburg, and there's this legend that as he set off um, to meet all his friends, a hare ran across his path. And in Russian superstition folklore, that a hare running across your path is very bad luck. So he turned around and went home. And if he'd joined his friends, then he would have been involved in the uprising and probably Mm. executed. Mm. Or exiled, and mm. um, so that's the basis of that sequence about Pushkin mm. in the Kharkov.
1: Again, it starts with a sonnet, doesn't it? A yeah, beautiful sonnet. the heads, quite a few. Um, yes, yeah, so actually, um, going on a bit more, I wanted to ask you something about um, some of the themes in the books. One of the, the first thing that really struck me, actually, is the a is the theme of war in the books, but in both books. Um, in the estate, for instance, there's a terrifying uh, poem called The Conscript, uh, which, you know, really frightening is. <laughs> it's a terrifying, uh, very, very frightening poem about um, someone being beaten up in an army, army barracks. Um, there's a poem, Annunciation in Red House, uh, about Arena Sendler um, rescuing children from the Warsaw Ghetto. Um, yes, there's, there's a, there's, through both collections, there's a there feels like there's a threat Quite a lot, isn't there? There's a threat. One, one of the threats is of war. I wonder whether you say whether that's, whether you think that's right, and whether that's a theme that's there in the work.
0: Yes, I, it is there. It's it's partly again because of Russia, although it's not directly mm. Russia. Mm. I think it's more in the sense that living in Russia at a period when it was at war with um, in various places, and you know, particularly the, the Caucasus, were um, mm. was was very was a very or was, Russia was was basically fighting in the Caucasus the whole time I was in Russia, and um so I suppose that that's always always there. And I think the other thing about being in Russia in the 1990s was that for, for um, there was a freedom suddenly freedom of of, of expression for, you know after Perestroika Perist- and and a lot of um, and what happened, I think, was a lot of people went back to the Second World War, or the Great Patriotic War, as it's known in Russia, mm. and started talking about it freely and openly. And mm-hmm. so some of that, I think, is, is, has found its way into the poems. That's, um, and the war ghetto poem about Irina Zandler was actually some Russians I knew who were talking about her. And, oh, really?
1: Um, you might say something about her, I didn't yeah. forget. I, mean, I don't know.
0: She was a woman who was actually nominated for a Nobel Prize at some point, Mm, but mm. she uh, rescued children from the Warsaw Ghetto. She pretended to be a a plumber or to be inspecting sanitation and took her plumbing kit with her and rescued children um, from from their parents, Mm. um, who were bound to die, so the parents had to give up their children in the hope that they would be um, saved.
1: Mm. And she
0: rescued, I mean, really, an awful lot of children, and then... Mm. Um, and these orphans um mostly survived, but she was caught she and but mm. she survived too and she was caught and tortured but she she did actually um, i think she um, yes got to the end of the war and and didn 't die didn 't die in the second world war mm. Mm. and the i'm just trying to think whichever yes the the, the poem about um the conscripts was a Russian again a Russian thing mm-hmm. that the Russian the Soviet army is, is formed of so many different nationalities and um, and everybody's conscripted at a certain age unless they can find a reason a good reason not to be conscripted which people spend an awful lot of money doing mm-hmm. and um, it, there's a lot of um, and there's it's just a lot of tension really in the army and and so
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, I think that was a poem about something that somebody told me about their. Mm-hmm their barracks, that they'd beaten up one particular soldier. Um, and it is basically as it happens in the poem, I didn't right, right, yeah. a lot of
1: Yes. Mm-hmm. But it's it is, it is very terrifying, isn't it? I was very struck by it. I mean generally I felt that in the I, I will copy possible things in a minute but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't want you to frighten everybody. Um, but I, I was I was struck by um, yeah a feeling that of also that the possibility of human viciousness, not not just war, but also to human viciousness. So in Maldron, which starts Red House, there's a line that says, "When the sun rises, it will seem to our ancestors that a new race has come out of the sea, dripping with gold, crueler than the last." Um, and the, the, again, that feels like a theme that runs through the book: is the possibility of cruelty, the threat of it placed against very often um, in the poem uh, on beauty, placed against the beauty of children, for instance. Um, it, it, uh, there's another, in, in Red House Secrets, there's a uh, the fear of rape, but there's all kinds of sort of there's a lot of threat at uh, work in the poem. I don't know whether that's something you want to talk about more, but I was very struck by it.
0: It's interesting. I did, I did a reading in Gosport a couple of years ago when I got to the end. A woman in the front said, See, the thing is, there's not much Comedy, or <laughs> 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 so. I'm just warning you. <laughs> um, yeah, I, it's it's interesting. I think that that's actually the point where I um, diverge from from David, and mm. and I, I mean in a completely um, sort of literary or poetic way, because mm. I absolutely share his ideas about poetry itself. But I think that for David, when I read his poems, I get the sense that. Um, if we just do the right thing and we sort ourselves out, then everything might be all right. Yeah, and it's, it's a very reassu- there's a very, something very reassuring about this poetry. If we just you know find that bit of laugh and find that bit of, of um, that 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 thing that's right, mm. then we will be we, we will come through. Mm. And I th- I think that. Um, I don't know if it's because I'm part of a different generation, and I think that might be something to mm, do yeah, with it probably, yeah. but i probably i don't necessarily um feel that way I don't think I'm hopeless in the least, but mm, I yeah, don't yeah, think yeah. that um you know if we just find those if we just get everything into its right place, things will be all right and i don't mm. i think it might be a generational thing actually it's probably more i don't know mm, don't know mm, mm. i mean obviously there's very
1: positive because um, it is set against very positive things so there's there 's a real celebration of nature in the, in particularly in the red house that i 'm thinking the wonderful poem Dawn chorus and laughter there 's a real kind of celebration of of nature there's even at times of fear about that because there's, in in the poem ten moons you talk about so that you know there's this imagination that these moons means that the wreck- wrecking can continue 24 hours a day. Mm-hmm. Again, a terrifying image because you expect a poem poem about moons to be very positive, and suddenly what looks to be a romantic image turns into a slightly terrifying one. Anyway, I wasn't meant to talk about that. A, there is a lot of uh, rejoicing in, in nature, isn't there? there's a lot of feeling for nature. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Let's think with that side of it for a moment. Shall we? <laughs> Would you agree? <laughs> is nature, something that's important, you know, is it, that there's a, a feeling for the natural world in the poems very much?
0: Yeah, I think it is quite important to me, and it is a good counterbalance to everything mm. else because I think there's something you, quite inherently safe in the cycles of nature, which mm. uh, you know. Uh, and it's it's a it's a, kind of a literary commonplace really, and I don't mean that in a in a in a bad way because I hope it will always be a literary commonplace that you know how often do you read about terrible things that have happened and then as they come to their close, you know the birds start singing, for example, or you know mm. you suddenly notice that actually it's not long till the trees come into the bud, and mm. somehow there's something very safe about um, about the natural cycle.
1: Mm. Although well, you turn that on its head, because there's one poem that I can't remember which it starts with, where where uh, spring trusses winter. But yeah, okay. Let's move on. Um, the other, the other, one of the other, uh, just one, two more questions. But the other, one of the other themes that struck me is that the theme of motherhood and and uh, children generally. Um, there's a wonderful poem in the estate called Motherhood, which uh, I found very, very moving. And uh, there's Wollstoneborough in the in Red House, and something like Fish's Dream. Um, there's a, a lot of feeling about children. You, you've got children of your own. Can you tell us something about children in poetry for you?
0: Yeah. Um, and motherhood. I have probably haven't written that many poems about motherhood. But I know somebody very. Um, Cleverly wrote recently that you probably don't get too many poems about birth and early motherhood because you're too lacquered to
1: actually <laughs> and write about it. Right. So, yeah,
0: you, you're kind of mostly looking back, at it, I think, mm. which is maybe slightly um, misleading. Um, mm. um, but difficult, difficult to know what to say, really. I haven't mm. written as much as I should have written about my children, but I suppose that's partly because... Um, I suppose when writing r I'm I find that poems again, I think it's something to do with this thing about everything was going to be all right. I found very straight kind of praise poems or poems that are about something that's absolutely wonderful, extremely hard to write. Mm. They somehow mm. they get stuck in my throat that makes me sound like a really <laughs> twisted person. Somehow you feel as if, you know, so many other poets have done that so beautifully and yeah. so wonderfully that um, as soon as you start looking at something that's extraordinary, you, you immediately turn to those poets and start thinking about their poems. Mm. So
1: and yeah. mm. mm. what about. Um, I, I wanted to ask you just a little bit about the, about the sequence Red House. It's again a series of seven sonnets. Um, again, it feels a very ambitious sequence to me. It's both mysterious, it's unsettling. It brings in history. It brings in the, the threat of violence. Uh, I'm struck by the echoes of St. James, uh, King, the King James Bible in it. Can you say something about the creation? Because you know, the first line and the last line is "the red house lies without the parish of the soul." Very unusual first line for a, a contemporary poet to be writing, and the whole sequence is a very haunting, unusual sequence. I wonder if you just say something about that sequence.
0: Well, it was it was written. Um... It, it wasn't written, um, how can I put this, some of the poems I've written have, have been started, I suppose, by looking at pieces of art. That was one one mm. of those. Um, so I, I saw a wonderful picture by Peter Doig called The Red House mm. and I started just thinking about that. And so the poem is not at all about that piece of work because mm. it's very distinct in my mind, but it's certainly, looking at that picture started off a whole circle of of, of thoughts mm. and I'll I'll read some of those poems. It's a a sort of um I think it's called a crown of sonnets, so it's a series of sonnets uh, yes, of with course. the on, yeah. the first and the last line are the same. But um beyond that I can't honestly tell you what it's exactly about because mm. um part of me thinks that it's about writing generally mm. and and some of it is taken, and a lot of it is is um, um, a lot of it is taken from things that I've I've seen or heard from people, mm. various mm. memories that people have given me.
1: Mm. Anyway, it's interesting that because uh, that was very struck. I, I thought her uh, poem, I don't know how you "Angora," so, which is a I thought a major poem in the in the collection, uh, it, it, and was very struck by your sympathy for the people that you're writing with, a real sense of you inhabiting their world and seeing it from their point of view so it's interesting that quite a lot of things you seem to be also to do with what you've heard from others and what your, your relationship with others
0: Yeah, that's probably uh, that's yes, I think that's really true I, and I think that might be something to do with the translation and that mm. it's, it's always quite a good way to get into a poem and I, I don't know possibly any any form of art is by entering in through another's voice mm. because it gives you a freedom that you don't have when you start writing from your own voice and it gives you a freedom to express the things that you, you, you want to, to say but somehow if, if you do it from an oblique angle then it, it frees mm. up an awful lot of mm. other
1: stuff mm. and, and finally we better finish but finally just I'd like to ask you about the, the religious feeling uh, about the poems the sense of sort of spiritual question in the poems. There's, there's a point in, in the Red House, in the sequence we are just talking about, where you say, there is no addressing the Lord, for we are plain beyond that. But isn't that white round a hole in the sky where he once sat? So I, I was stuck by that, and again, these, throughout the poem, like the the the, 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 the 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 whole collection finishes with, your love is a walled garden, and yet there will be no name that can contain it, without a full stop. Um, so I'm wondering about the spiritual aspect. There seems to be, to me, a spiritual yearning in the poems and and, and a sense of the absence of God um, from, from reading them.
0: Yeah, I think that's probably, I mean, that's very true and probably something to do with, I mean, I, I was brought up a Catholic, although not mm. a particularly, um, um, well, we, we went to church, but I wouldn't have said we were wildly devout, but certainly there's that kind of ca- Irish Catholicism around that it's very um um very cultural really and all about all sorts of other things apart from going to church and mm. going to church is one of them but um and, so, and I, I i don't i don't i don't believe and so um so a lot of my childhood seems to be a series of little rituals which um and, and it's quite a hard it's a, it's quite a hard thing to it Explain for me. Mm. I don't know if it's something that's particular to, um, uh, deeply cultural religions or if it's something that, I don't know. I mean, it's quite, I'd be really interested to hear about your experiences mm. actually because it's not something that I've ever mm. managed to, to work out. Mm. But yes, certainly. I used to, I, 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 I didn't go to church after when I was a teenager, but I did try and go back when I was at university and, um, um, lasted a very short time,
1: really. <laughs> <because> <laughs> mm-hmm. And just, just to finish, have you, have, you, have you got another collection coming out? And no, it's fairly, fairly recently since The Red House came out. But...
0: No, I'm working on some poems at the moment. As mm. so I was saying earlier, I'm working on some long poems, um, which is something that I haven't done before. And it's, it's really fun to do because it's a different pace and it's... Mm. it's, it's it's, I suppose it's the difference between a sprint and a marathon. Really, it's mm. it's odd because you can't write from inspiration if you're writing a long poem because you just couldn't keep it up. So it's there's some you some different paying out of energy, which is is it's fun to, to to try and explore and see what 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 what, what happens. So I've mm. I've just been writing about that. I've 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 started writing a series about um, a sort of long poem about two um, twin brothers, princes. And their um, father sets them to sail along the Seine, um, and they 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 float down the the River Seine in France, and um, it's such a a sort of brilliant scene. I think it was a picture that was painted, and it's in the it's mm. in the art gallery in Rouen. I saw the picture, mm. so I thought I'd write something about that. And mm. it's been great to do actually. It's been mm. a sort of wonderful, uh, wonderful thing to.
1: Do, but uh, that's, that's about it, really. Yeah. Right. Good. Good. Well, thank you very much. Thank very you. Night, no, too.
0: <laughs> <inaudible> we hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you.